0: This morning, let's turn please to Mark chapter 14, verse 33. Listening to that well chosen song, I was thinking of the unrelenting faithfulness of this group that's gathered here and your constant obedience to. Assemble together as is God's heart's desire for us. And I think of all those who in our ministry are presently either grieving, suffering, or hurting in a way that they cannot travel to be with us. And they are with us in spirit and in heart for sure. And they will tell you that. I want to just keep them in mind and keep them in our hearts and present them to the throne of grace as we listen to today's message. Also, Pastor Brown, who usually prays in the beginning of our message, we're going to pray for him today and for Pauletta. They have a special assignment, a special commission this week on October 17th in Atlanta, Georgia. They were called upon by the Honorable Shania R. Gilchrist, who is a circuit court of appeals judge. She's going to be inaugurated on, in a judgeship this Thursday. She has had a stellar career in the military as a JAG officer. She's flown F-16s. She's ascended to many promotions. But guess who she thought of when she asked for the speaking for her inauguration and the prayer for her, the dedication of her robe to the service of the Lord in our country? Pastor Brown and Pauletta, because she remembers the son. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Yes. They can take it. They won't, get, they won't get big heads over this. And she, the songs that they taught her many, many years ago, she still recalls, and those are the truths in those songs that got her through. So we want to pray today for Pastor Brown and for Pauletta as they go on this important commission. Father, we thank you today for the faithful service that's been constantly rendered through Pastor and Mrs. Brown. And we understand the joy and the desire of Judge Gilchrist in calling upon them for this most strategic moment in her career. And we pray that you will bless them as they bring forth the word and the petitions that you put in their mouths through the Holy Spirit and that your spirit will indeed be present there. And we, along with them, dedicate the Honorable Shania Gilchrist, to a life of service to you. For she has been indeed raised up for such a time as this in our nation. Such a terrific time of change and upheaval in many ways. We thank you. We dedicate her to your service. And we know that she's going to serve you first in those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that she has in her heart. Will be guiding her, and as she serves her country honorably, grant her the wisdom to judge in true justice and mercy, and bless the trip, the travels of Pastor Brown and Pauletta as they go on this very important mission to represent you and to represent, as they always do, to tell us thy phalanx. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ, part two. And part one was last week under the larger title of the doctrine of the mystery, which we're approaching from the standpoint of the the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ. We begin with Mark chapter 14, verse 33. I translated this freshly this morning from the Greek text. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and he began to be horrified and deeply distressed. What struck him was amazed him in a way that isn't a happy amazement, but a horrific amazement as he faced his destiny. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death stay here and keep watch. He went forward a little and fell down on the ground and was praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will now it might be suggested that the entirety of what the Bible calls the days of his flesh in Hebrews 5, 7 constituted the obedience of Jesus Christ and that the culmination of that obedience led him to the death of the cross. Jesus, the incarnate eternal word considered his human body, as a gift from God, because that body was the vehicle in and by which he would do the Father's will. Now, as I always like to bring in every weapon at my disposal, I'll use a little bit of exegesis. His will is Thelema. This is going to figure prominently into our series on the mystery, Thelema. T-H-E-L-E-M-A, when Jesus prayed to the Father, not what I will, he uses the verb form of this noun, fellow, T-H-E-L-O, Thello, not what I will. And that word isn't even used again. He says, not what I will, but you, but you, meaning what you will, fellow. And this is the will of God. Now hold on to this thought, of Thelema and Thelo throughout the study. By this will, as Hebrews ten five and 7 says, we, says the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus, the incarnate, eternal word, Considered his human body as a gift from God because in it he said, I delight to accomplish your will. Thalema. Hebrews ten five, ten seven. And again, by this will, as Hebrews ten ten says, we have been sanctified once and for all epapaks. Hebrews 7.27 uses the word. Hebrews 9.12 uses the word once and for all. Romans 6.10 uses the word once and for all, needing no repetition. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all occurred at the very same moment of the offering of himself to God through the age-abiding spirit, the eternal spirit, in Hebrews 9.14. He offered himself to God as God's lamb without blemish or defect in order to take away sin. Hebrews nine twenty six That means the sin of the world in John 129. So there's a complementarity between Romans and Hebrews. There's an affinity or a, almost a kind of synchronicity. Whereas a salient theme in Romans is justification, we just finished. Ten short hours on that. As it deals with the insufficiency of the moral code of the law for salvation. Again, Romans justification and the insufficiency of the moral code of the law for salvation. So in Hebrews, a significant theme is sanctification. With an emphasis on the insufficiency of the sacrifices offered under the Levitical code of the law with respect to salvation so in both romans with its emphasis on justification and hebrews with its stress upon sanctification the meritorious obedience of jesus christ is an essential motif or theme in romans romans 10:4 christ is the end of the law for righteousness for justification and in Hebrews Christ is the all-sufficient offering which renders all the sacrifices and offerings of the Levitical order as unwanted by God in fact another 10 4 Hebrews 10 4 for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins In Romans, the total insufficiency of works performed by individual human beings in obedience to the Torah for justification accentuates the radical all sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his obedience as the means for salvation of all humanity. In Hebrews, the total salvific insufficiency. Of offerings and sacrifices presented by humans through a human priesthood accentuates the complete sufficiency, on the other hand, of the once and for all sacrifice and offering, self offering, of the great high priest, who is both the offerer and the offering, the priest and the lamb, and who by that one offering took away sin at the axis of the two ages, Hebrews 9.26, the sin of the world, if we bring John 1.29 into it. But there would be no efficacious offering, no saving offering, if there were not the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ in amazing, self-giving love. In Romans, the obedience of Jesus Christ appears in a duo of verses. It's kind of a distich, where they both complement each other. Proverbs is filled with distiches, two-line poems that complement each other. Romans 5.18 and 19 is kind of a complementary distich. So then, as through one sin, condemnation came to all people, so through the righteous act of one came the justification of life, to all people for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the one representative man, many were constituted as sinners. Now a distich means that for one thing, the many in 519 equals the all in 518 and the all equals the many as this is a distich, a dual duo of verses just as through the disobedience of the one representative man, Many, that is all, were constituted as sinners. So also through the, notice this phrase, the obedience of the one, the one representative man, the many or all were constituted as righteous. Central to the case being made by the author of Hebrews, an unknown author, an epistle in which sanctification is at issue. Is also the obedience of Jesus Christ, even though he is and was and always is the divine person called the Son of God twelve times in Hebrews at least, Hebrews one two, one five, twice he's called that, one eight, three six, four fourteen, five five, five eight, six, six, seven, three, seven twenty eight, and ten twenty nine, the Son of God where justification is described as bringing life or being life to all of humanity. The obedience of the one Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. Where sanctification is construed as the making holy of the many sons whom God brings to glory through the suffering of his son, the obedience of God's son is indispensable. According to 1 Corinthians 1.30, a very important verse, God made Jesus Christ to be for us both sanctification, which is the salient motif of Hebrews, and righteousness or justification, which is the salient theme for Romans. Jesus is our justification. And Jesus is our sanctification as well as wisdom for us and redemption, the redemptions of our body. Jesus was made our justification and our sanctification through his obedience, which culminated with the death of the Son of God, by which God reconciled his enemies. In Romans 5.10, justified the ungodly. Romans four five, confer with five six also, and sanctified the unholy. In Hebrews ten ten, as he justifies the ungodly, he sanctifies the unholy. Hebrews ten ten again, perfecting them it says for all time, perfecting them for all time in Hebrews ten fourteen. On top of this Hebrews 13:12 says Jesus suffered outside the gate and that's extremely important he suffered outside the gate so that he might it says sanctify the people by his own blood While Romans five nine says, much more assuredly then, since we have now been justified by Christ's blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. Now from Romans we learn that this justification is for all of humankind diachronically, that means throughout all of time. Humanity throughout all of time diachronically. Romans five eighteen. The blood of Christ has a universally justifying and a universally sanctifying effect. Consequently, this phrase, the people, it says, who are sanctified by Christ's blood has to be all people in all times and not just the people of Israel. As Christ's blood has to be the means of justification for all in Romans 5.18. So his blood is the means of the sanctification for all. Hebrews 10.10, 10, So as Romans 11.32 assures us, God's saving mercy, and mercy there is specifically saving mercy, extends to all Jews and Gentiles alike. Now that Jesus suffered outside the gate pictures him as expelled from society of man the society of religion the society of Jerusalem outside, expelled ostracized but much more than that it says he is more than the antitype. Of the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the Holy of Holies by the high priest as a sin offering. And these animals' bodies are burned outside the camp, the encampment of Israel, in Hebrews thirteen eleven. But more than that, Jesus suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem to in- illustrate that his death was for all inside the gate including those who said crucify him. He was cut off from all of humanity to be the sin offering for all of humanity because he suffered outside the gate. All 12 gates of the new Jerusalem will remain forever opened to admit the steady flow of nations and their kings who are said to bring their glory into her. Revelation 21, 24, and 25. So Revelation offers a striking picture of the universally redemptive and reconciling effect of Jesus sanctifying and rectifying death outside the gate. A death that required his meritorious obedience. Jesus was expelled from the very city that his death was to redeem And reconciled to God. The only worthy one. Was expelled. From that city. But as a result of this. The city is made new. A new Jerusalem. And all the unworthy. May enter. And will enter. That Christ's obedience is called meritorious. Why do we call it that? Well, it means that his faithful obedience merited salvation for all of the meritless. In other words, for all who sinned and who fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23 to 24. So all are saved, justified and sanctified, not only through their own merit, but not even through their own non-meritorious faith. I'll say that again. All are saved, including justified and sanctified, not through their own merit, and not even through their own non-meritorious faith, but through the meritorious faithfulness of one Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We live, and I say live now, with newness of life because of his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God, the life I now live. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God by saying it's through my works or through my non meritorious faith that faithfulness of the son of God is aka also known as his obedience all I see and I can see nothing else all I see as the cause of my salvation and the salvation of all is Jesus Christ and him crucified The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote this. We see Jesus. Who took a position lower than the angels for a short time. So that by God's grace. He would taste. Death. The wages of sin. For everyone. Crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus. And him crucified and now crowned, not with a crown of thorns, but with a crown of glory. We see him. And there's always a remembrance of his crucifixion in his resurrected, exalted glory. Romans and Hebrews are not the only carriers of the testimony of Jesus Christ's meritorious obedience. Consider what Bernard Lonergan wrote, and I agree with Jeremy Wilkins, Lonergan's time, even though he died in 1984, his time wasn't the course of his life between 04 and 84. His time is now. And like Paul, he's been most misunderstood and misinterpreted. But I'm very grateful that the Holy Spirit has guided me to his writings, which I do not Comprehend, As Lonergan was quoted as saying when we quoted him in our theology class, in God there are five notions, four relations, two processions, two missions, three persons, and zero understanding about him in theology. We're trying to remedy that. In DLT and here, where we cross-pollinate, consider what Lonergan wrote in his book called *The Redemption*, which up until very sh- short years ago was only in Latin. On page fifty-nine, he said both the Gospels, and he quotes he cites Mark fourteen thirty-six and parallels what we just read. Both the Gospels and Paul, and he quote he cites Philippians two eight and Romans five nineteen. Note the obedience of Christ. He said both the Gospels and Paul note the obedience of Christ in accepting his passion and death. And that's very true. The obedience included his acquiescence, his acceptance of his passion and death. And on page 59 and 61, I say 59 and 61 because 60 is a Latin page. He says, now the word of God made flesh, John 1.14, had a body fitted to him. And then he cites Hebrews 10.5. And he took part in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14. So that he was like his brethren in every way, Hebrews 2.17. And was tested like us in every respect, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 and since his supreme act of love john 15:15 15, 15, was to be performed not in his mind alone but also in his body it is no wonder the gospels relate his anguish luke 12:50 his troubled soul john 12:27 his longing luke 22:15 his fear, his weariness, his sorrow, even unto death. Mark fourteen thirty four. This will give you a hint of things to come. It isn't only in our mind that we obey. We present our bodies, which is our reasonable service. Now, Hebrews 2.10 tells us, that Jesus was perfected through suffering. How can a perfect man be perfected? So what does this mean? It means that he became the perfect sin offering through the suffering of death, the death by which he experienced sin's wages for all human beings by the grace of God. This may well be what Jesus was referring to when he told the Pharisees who tried to intimidate him. They say, you know, Herod's seeking to kill you, which didn't intimidate Jesus in the slightest. But this may explain his words when he said to them, go back and tell Herod, which he called that old fox. You go tell that fox this message for me. Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will be perfected. Luke thirteen thirty two. Jesus wanted even Herod to know the truth of the gospel. That Jesus himself was to become the perfect sin offering, even for him, for Herod, that fox. Jesus being perfected as the sin offering, the sin offering was the culmination of his praiseworthy obedience to the Father's will. For as Philippians 2.9 says, therefore God elevated him to the loftiest height. I dwell in the lofty place, says Yahweh, with him who is also of a crushed spirit. Because he was obedient to the extent of death and crushed even the death of the cross. That doesn't say even death by that horrible thing called crucifixion. Yeah, that's enough to think about, but the death of the cross was the tasting of death for all humankind. That's the death of the cross. No wonder Jesus was suddenly shocked, surprised and amazed, which would have turned anyone's black hair, white, in fact, that may be one of the reasons why when he's seen, he has white hair like a lamb's wool. Shocked and amazed in an amazement, not, oh, how wonderful, but in amazement, oh, how horrible. So that he tasted death for everyone. Jesus accepted this death. Death. And that's his obedience. He accepted this death with the view that by dying this particular death, he would defeat the one who had power over death, even the devil. Hebrews 2.14. Because of the suffering of death, which Jesus underwent as a result of his obedient acceptance, he has been crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews 2.9, read it together with Philippians 2.8 and 9. They're saying the same thing. It almost makes you wonder who wrote these things. Paul knew as much about the Levitical order of sacrifices as he did about the moral code for sure. Someone was either writing with the influence of Paul or something else going on here. God elevated and exalted Jesus because of the meritorious and praiseworthy obedience by which he headed to the cross and endured the cross, experiencing the wages of sin by becoming sin and exhausting sin's enslaving and death dealing effects. For all of humanity, in all of its times, When we don't see the universal impact of this, we need to undergo a conversion. It's strange that people who believe in an eternal hell quote people like Augustine and others who said that we will actually rejoice in the eternal suffering of the damned. You know what's needed when people say that and think that? A moral conversion on their part. That's the worst kind of immorality is the faith in God eternally torturing people. That's a far worse immorality than the so-called immorality that the fundamentalist churches like to berate every Sunday because they don't do it with their body, just with their mind all the time and with their body in the secret. A moral conversion is required. I had to go through a moral conversion to see the universal horizon of Christ's redemptive death. That's coming up. Much to the teeth gritting of the fundy. Now. The fourth gospel chimes in here. With Hebrews and with Paul because in John 12:31 Jesus said now is the ruler of this world thrown out the one who has the power over death even the devil now the ruler of this world is thrown out now and he followed up by a more famous verse in 12:32 and as for me if i'm lifted up I will drag all to myself, which means I'll drag all the world to myself and away from the ruler of this world who's kicked out right now. I'll drag everyone away from the one who had the power of death, even the devil. And in first John 1, 8, the son of God was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. One of those works, perhaps his primary work, is his holding of all the human race under the fear of death for their whole life long. People don't live because they fear death. People only begin to live when they stop fearing death. Hebrews 2.15. So the obedience of Jesus Christ continues to be thematic or the theme in Hebrews 5 after saying you are a priest throughout the age, literally in Hebrews 5, 6, to be compared with Malki Zedek, Malki king, Zedek righteousness, Malchizedek. Hebrews 5, 6, the unknown author goes on to say, as he interprets, what I quoted at the beginning of our today's message Mark 14:33 to 36 that this priest Jesus quote during the course of his days in the flesh offered up entreaties and supplications with a loud outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he was a, he was heard on account of his reverence. You say, how did he, how was he heard when he said, take this cup away from me? Because the petition wasn't done yet. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's what the father heard. The son's reverential, obedient acceptance of what he saw ahead of him with horrific amazement. So, He was heard on account of his reverence, it says. Which is his reverent acceptance of the cup that he must drink according to the father's will. And it goes on to say in Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience. We might say he demonstrated what it was. Even though. He was the Son of God, the Son, the only eternally begotten Son of God. Even though he was the only eternally begotten Son of God, he learned obedience in the things that he suffered. Jesus had to go through the human experience of choosing to accept his destiny as the sin offering for all of humanity. So you say, is human will involved in our eternal salvation? And I say, yes, it is. Jesus' human will as the representative of all mankind, whose obedience is meritorious for all of us. And so, Jesus had to go through the human experience of choosing to accept his destiny as the sin offering for all of humanity. He accepted that destiny in his human will, in Gethsemane, while suffering untold agony. Even to the extent of death. He wasn't kidding when he said, I think I'm going to die before I get there. I don't know if you ever experienced grief like that. Nobody experienced it like him because nobody saw a destiny like he saw. But For the joy of seeing you here today, he endured the cross. And so he accepted that destiny in his human will while suffering terrific agony, even to the extent of death. Jesus was heard by God, his father, when he said, not what I will thalo but you, that's all it says in the Greek, but you, meaning, but what you will. With a loud outcry and tears, Jesus prefaced that heard request, the request that was heard, with Abba, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. The father heard the son who reverently obeyed his will. Thelo then is the verb form of the noun thelema, which happens to be used in Ephesians 1.9, the mystery of God's will. Thelema, which happens to be to summarize everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ. That's the mystery. What was Jesus obeying? That father's purpose. His will summary of all things, God's saving will, the father wills to save all humankind and to give them the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy two: four He obeyed that saving will. Now here's a big question for you. The father heard the son's prayer as he always did, for the son always did the things that pleased him. In John 8, 29, what pleased the father most of all was the self offering of the son to him for us as the spotless lamb of God through the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9, 14, this offering was the end of a walk in love in Ephesians 5, 2, and it ascended to the father as a sweet fragrance And at the same time, the sin of the world was taken away. At the moment of the father's greatest pleasure in the son, he just took the sin of the world away. (laughs) All of it must have been pretty happy at that moment. The son offered himself. So the son's request ended in acquiescence to the father's will. It was ultimately not a request to be spared the terrible cup that was his to drink, though he recoiled in sheer horror from that prospect. The intriguing question remains, therefore, would the father have heard the son if he had left his request at, take this cup away from me? I know the question leaves you out there, doesn't it? Well, it's moot. It's rendered unnecessary because the request did not end there. Was there a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, like a moment in the Garden of Eden, when Jesus could have opted for his own salvation and only his own salvation? Talk about testing. But the prayer didn't end there. The father didn't hear, I'll take this cup away from me. The father heard, take this cup away from me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours. He was heard because of the reverential acquiescence of Jesus to the father's will. The father heard him. He delivered him from death only after he tasted it for everybody. Then the deliverance from it was called resurrection, which is also our destiny. The prayer request ended with the obedient words, not what I will fellow, but what you will through the father's will were saved though the father's will was certainly not to torture his son with unspeakable pain, nevertheless it was his will not to spare his son but to freely hand him over for us all romans eight thirty two as the lamb that God would provide for himself in genesis twenty two eight through whom salvation would come to all in order to God's will would be fulfilled because that is his will. And just what is God's will? It's his intention to sum up everybody and everything in the heavens and on earth in his son. That's the mystery of God's will. Ephesians one, nine to 10, the father's will was, is, and always will be a saving will. His universally saving will required not saving his son from death until he had tasted death for every single person without exception. Those who want to leave one particularly evil person in history in hell forever are substituting the scapegoat for somebody else and their idolaters they're failing to recognize they accept the heinousness of the evil of men over the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who became the scapegoat for all men. They need a moral conversion. More than that, they need a spiritual conversion where the love of God pours out in their hearts. So as we move to fourth and final gear, The summing up of all things is to be through instauration. And the instauration is brought about by Jesus Christ's meritorious obedience to the Father's all-saving will. One more thing about about Hebrews. The indispensable theme of Jesus Christ's meritorious and praiseworthy obedience is highlighted again in Hebrews 10. Where Jesus speaks according to a messianic psalm. Namely, Psalm 40, especially in verses 6 through 8. In Hebrews 10.5, right after the declaration in 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, the writer adds, therefore, coming into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings is not what you will, Thallot. Same word. But a body you have prepared for me. Verse 6, you've taken no satisfaction in whole burnt offerings, holocausts, and sacrifices for sins. Then I said, Jesus speaking, Look, I've come. It's written about me in a scroll of the book of the Torah to do, O oh God, your will, Thalema. Your will. To Thalema su to do your will decided in Gethsemane dramatically. What exactly is written in the scroll of the book or the written Torah? Well, it's in a scroll of the Psalms. You can read it yourself and should probably specifically Psalm 40 and more specifically Psalm 40 and verse six in the English translation, which says literally not a body you have prepared for me, but he says You hollow out ears for me. Now that's strange. The reference is to the, literally to the ear canal. The narrow tube-like passage through which sound enters the ear. It's also known as the external auditory canal. The ear canal is a figure of speech called synecdoche, S-Y-N-E-C-H, or E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Where for the whole corporeal body of Jesus Christ. The ears, the ears dug out, are put for his entire body. And so it's a synecdoche for the whole corporeal body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which was fitted to him to do God's will. In Psalm 40, in verse 6, the ear canal is the part put for the whole. So when Jesus comes and says, interpreting Psalm 40 and verse 6, not only did you dig ear canals for me to hear you so I can obey, you gave me a body fitted for obedience to you, which I will offer on the cross to sanctify all people for all time and perfect them. Not only taking away their sin, but restoring the glory From which they fell. So. The name of the part of the anatomy of the flesh of the eternal word made flesh stands for the whole human body. But the ear canal stands not only for the body per se, but for the body so fitted for obedience to God's will. So Paul refers to our human body, for example, as not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Our body is not a vehicle. Well, we look at it and we look at the body of another person. We say, well, this we're made for each other to do this. No, we're made. This body is made in which we are to enact obedience to God. To serve the Lord. Our body is for the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.13 as a vehicle to enact obedience to the Lord. You know what that, that is? It amounts to a grace imitation of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 2, and a manifestation of the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies, whereby we actually participate in his faithful obedience. It's called the obedience of faith to which all the nations are called. Again, that which is involved in the comparison between Psalm 40 and verse 6, the Septuagint has it in 39, 7, just to confuse us all the more. And Hebrews 10.5, it's a figure of speech called synecdoche. It's defined by the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, as, quote, a figure of speech in which the name of a part is used to stand for the whole. Now, we're going to hold on to that definition for future teachings. Or the whole for the part. The specific for the general or the general for the specific or the material for the thing made for it. So Hebrews 10.5 has the most excellent synecdoche or figure of speech possible because obedience begins with the hearing or the perception by the ears, whether those ears are spiritual or literal, of a divine command. For example, hear, O Israel, you will love the Lord, your God. Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Jesus was bodily obedient to the Father, that which he called his father's will, to the will of God. The ear canals which he had, which were dug out by God for him, were the means of receiving the commandments of his father in order to be humanly obedient to his will as a divine person. So he says, what I hear, that's what I judge. I don't do anything on my own. A body he's prepared for me fitted with ear canals through which his commands enter and to which I am obedient. The very ears of Messiah were the means of the father's will coming about fitted to him. To accomplish the mystery of the father's will. And for this reason elsewhere. And in another scroll of the book. The Messiah says this. The Lord God has given me the tongue. Of those who are instructed to know. How to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. This is a Messiah speaking. He awakens my ear to listen like those who have been instructed. There's nothing like waking up in the morning and through the ears of your heart receiving a word from the Lord that you get to follow for the rest of the day. That's, what I, that's why I get these messages. That's how I get them. Most of the time. By the incarnation then of the eternal word, the being made flesh of the only eternally begotten Son of God, God the Son was fitted with a body in which to be obedient to the Father's will, which is to save all humanity and to bring all humans to the knowledge of the truth. The man Christ Jesus, the sole mediator between God and all of humanity, in his obedience to the Father's universally saving will, gave himself as a liberation fee for all persons. That's First Timothy And Father, we thank you. Well, what do we thank you for? The obedience of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience. We thank you for that moment of decision in Gethsemane in which you were under the most horrific grief, sadness, pressure, horror. You made that decision for us. Thank you, Lord.